Chapter 29 Seven and Nine Years Among the Comanches and Apaches An Autobiography by Edwin Eastman This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Vigilance with the influx of population to our settlement came adventurers of all classes, desperadoes, gamblers, broken-down professional men, nymphs de poivre of the coarse and vulgar sort, gentlemen who had interest in wildcat mines in half the counties of the Pacific states, greasers or Mexicans, Indians, Pueblas, in short a conglomerate mass of humanity, or, judging by later events, one might rather say, inhumanity, such as is nowhere to be seen but the mining towns of the far west. Under the instructions of Ned Harding, we had on our first arrival located all the claims that there was any probability of our working and we were therefore secured against interference on the part of the newcomers, who went prospecting all over the adjacent country, locating claims by the hundred. As the process of locating claims may be new to the reader, I will give a brief description of it. The first thing is to find your lead for this precious metal is not found indiscriminately in every rock or ledge you may chance upon. It is found only in the quartz rock, a ledge of which, say twenty feet in thickness, may run like a curbstone set on edge for many miles across hills and in valleys. It may be a mile in depth and maintain a nearly uniform thickness, being perfectly distinct from the casing rock on each side of it, and keeping its distinctive character always, no matter how deep or how far into the earth it extends. Wherever it is bored into, gold and silver are found, but none in the meaner rock surrounding it. This peculiar rock formation is called a lead, and one of these you must first find before you have anything to locate a claim upon. When your prospecting has resulted in the discovery of a lead, you write out and put up a notice as follows. Notice. I, or we, the undersigned, claim one or more according to the number of the party, claim of three hundred feet, and one for discovery on this silver or gold, bearing quartz lead or load, extending east and west from this notice, with all its dips, spurs, and angles, extensions and sinuosities, together with fifty feet of ground on each side for working the same. Then you file a copy of the same with the mining recorder in the town, and your claim is entered. In order to secure it, however, you must, within ten days, do a certain amount of work upon the property, or anyone may re-enter it at the expiration of that time. Among the most important citizens in every mining community are the essayers, 
of whom there are generally a swarm to be found about every new strike. Some of them, the various charlatans that ever disgraced an honorable profession. When you have located your claim, the next thing is to select some specimens and subject them to the test of the fire essay. For this purpose, it is customary to select the richest lump you can find, and take it to the essayer. On the result of his essay, he will predict that a ton of such ore would yield hundreds, perhaps thousands of dollars, and in this way many a worthless mine has been sold for a large price. In fact, I think, as a rule, the speculators made far more than the miners themselves. We had at one time an essayer in our camp, who obtained such rich results from every specimen of rock brought to him that he soon had a virtual monopoly of the business. No matter what specimen might be brought to him, he would demonstrate that it contained so large a portion of gold or silver that the development of the mine could not fail to be profitable. Some of his rivals in the trade, becoming jealous of his superior success, conspired together and concocted a plan for his overthrow. One of them procured somewhere an old lapstone, and breaking it into small fragments, selected one as the specimen to be subjected to the intended victim for testing. They let several of the principal miners into the secret, and as there had been some doubts of the reliability of the reports of the essayer in question, they readily assented to assist in proving the truth of the matter. So one of them brought him the specimen and left it for essay. The result was encouraging in the extreme, for in the course of an hour, the essayer sent in his report, from which it appeared that a ton of rock equal to the sample would yield $1,324.80 in silver and $214.58 in gold. The whole matter was at once made public and the discomfited charlatan immediately found that important business called him elsewhere, and departed between two days. It was well for him that he did so, for so great was the popular indignation that it is probable he would have found a permanent residence in the vicinity, could the excited miners have laid hands on him at this time. The town of Harding had now developed into an embryo city. We had nearly 2,000 inhabitants, representing every grade of civilization and barbarism, principally the latter. At night, the place presented an animated spectacle, for about every third shanty was either a drinking den or a gambling hell. All were brilliantly lighted and wide open to the street, from which you could see the excited groups around the gaming tables, or before the bars. Every man went armed to the teeth. Fights and arrays were of almost daily, nay, hourly occurrence. The crack of the pistol became a very familiar sound in my ears and so frequent were the scenes of violence and murder 
that I began to think that the men I was among were worse than the savages with whom my lot had been cast in former years. To such a pass did the insolence and brutality of these desperadoes come at last, that the better class of the miners began to talk among themselves of the necessity for doing something to check it, but none seemed disposed to take the lead, and things went on from bad to worse until the arrival of a new actor upon the scene brought them to a climax, and disorder and violence culminated in a sudden and severe spasm of justice. The new arrival, who was destined to be the principal figure in the tragic scenes about to be enacted, was a Kentuckian named Reed. He was some twenty-eight or thirty years of age, of medium size and finely proportioned, but very athletic. He had a frank and engaging expression of countenance, and nothing in his appearance would seem to indicate the hardened ruffian. Yet he was reported to have slain thirty-two men in a phrase or personal difficulties since he came into the mining country. From the very day of his arrival, this man became the acknowledged leader of all the lawless elements of our community, and as he seemed to be thirsting for notoriety, outrage followed outrage in rapid succession. Among our own original party was a quiet, inoffensive German named Schaefer, than whom a more peaceable man could nowhere be found. Against him, Reed seemed to have a special spite from the moment he first encountered him, and finally, meeting him one evening in the El Dorado Saloon, he forced a quarrel on him, and then shot poor Schaefer dead, before the latter had time to make a movement in his own defense. He apparently supposed that this would be passed over in the same manner as his previous ill deeds. But for once he was mistaken. In killing Schaefer, he had roused against him a determined and bitter enemy. None other than Ned Harding himself, who was now acting as mayor, or alcalde, of the town named in his honor. Ned quickly gathered together our own party, and some twenty-five of the leading men in the place, and announced his determination to form a vigilance committee and rid the town of the desperadoes who infested it. The entire party acquiesced in the wisdom of the proposal, and the committee was organized then and there. After some consultation, a plan of operations was agreed upon and at once put in practice. The next morning, a neatly written note appeared posted in several prominent places in the camp, warning all objectionable characters to leave town within twenty-four hours, or their lives would be forfeited. This document was signed, The Vigilance, and naturally created considerable stir and excitement among the parties at whom it was directed, and many of them took the warning and departed. But some of the more desperate, in all about twenty in number, banded themselves together under the leadership of Reed, and swore that they would never leave town, except of their own free will, 
and defied the vigilance to touch any one of their number. At the expiration of the twenty-four hours, we determined to arrest all the members of Reed's party and deal with them as they deserved. Accordingly, we mustered our forces and at the same time made known our intentions to most of the more prominent men in the camp. When all our arrangements were completed, we proceeded in search of our game, and in a couple of hours had caught and caged every member of the gang, with two exceptions. One of these had in some way become aware of our intentions, and he found it convenient to seek another locality without delay. The other man was no less a person than Reed himself, and he went about boasting that no man dare arrest him, and threatening with instant death any man who should attempt it. This duty Ned Harding had reserved for himself, and when all was in readiness, he set out to accomplish it. As he was not known to be a vigilant, and was noted as a man of very quiet and peaceable character, no suspicion attached to him of being concerned in the matter. Arming himself, he went into the main street of the village, and entering one of the principal saloons, confronted the desperado. The latter must have seen in Ned's eye that he meant mischief, for he made a motion as if to draw a weapon, but before he could do so, he was seized by the throat and thrown to the ground with the full force of Ned's muscular arm. Other vigilants, to the number of about twenty, closed in around the fallen man and his captor, with drawn revolvers, and guarded against any attempt at rescue. Reed was securely bound, lifted to his feet, and placed in close confinement in one of the shanties belonging to our party, under the guard of two well-armed and determined men. Two hours later, all the prisoners were brought up for execution. The miners turned out in large numbers, and forming in solid column, armed to the teeth, they marched up the principal street and halted in front of the building where most of the prisoners were confined. The doomed men were quickly brought out and informed of the fate in store for them. At the same time, Ned Harding made his appearance, leading Reed, and the same announcement was made to the latter. Such a scene as ensued, I hope never to see again. These apparently fearless desperadoes, who had repeatedly imbrued their hands in human blood without an instant's hesitation, were transformed on the moment into a pack of whining cowards, begging and entreating in the most abject manner that their lives might be spared. Reed, the ringleader of all, was the most utter craven of the whole number, and shrieks, curses, and prayers for mercy rolled unceasingly from his lips until the rope choked his utterance. Just outside the camp stood a considerable grove of trees. To this we repaired with our prisoners, 
and in ten minutes more they were run up, one after another, and each hung convulsed in the death agony at the end of a lariat. To me, the utter cowardice displayed by these ruffians was surprising, but there is something about the desperado nature that is unaccountable. At least, it seems unaccountable, and it is this. The true desperado is gifted with splendid courage, and yet he will take the most infamous advantage of his enemy. Armed and free, he will stand up before a host and fight until he is cut to pieces. And yet, when brought under the gallows, he will plead and cry like a child. The case of Reed was especially notable. From his bloody reputation, and the many instances of courage he had shown in his conflicts with other outlaws. Yet, when brought face to face with death, in a different form, he seemed the veriest poltroon that ever walked. Words cost nothing, and it is easy to call him a coward. As all executed men, who fail to die game, are invariably called by unreasoning people. And when a man like Reed so exhausts himself by tears, prayers, and lamentations that he has scarcely strength enough to stand under the gallows, it seems hardly possible that he could be otherwise. Yet he had frequently defied and invited the vengeance of banded Rocky Mountain cutthroats by shooting down their comrades or leaders and never offering to hide or fly. He had shown himself to be a man of unquestioned bravery, for no coward would dare do such things. We often read of the most brutal and cowardly murderers, who, when on the gallows, make their last dying speeches without a tremor of the voice, and are swung off into eternity, with what seems like the calmest fortitude. Hence, it seems clear that in such low and degraded natures, it cannot be moral courage that sustains them. But if moral courage is not the requisite quality, what is it that such men as Reed lack? Bloody, desperate, reckless, and yet kindly mannered and urbane gentlemen, who never hesitate to warn their enemies of their intention to kill them on sight when next they meet. It seems to me a question worthy of study and solution. The executions over, we return to the town, first detaching a party to remove and bury the bodies. Then the assemblage quietly dispersed, and that night our little community saw the first peace and quiet it had known for many a day. The condition of affairs in the new mining districts was peculiar. One reason why murder and outrage were so prevalent was that the rough element generally predominated, and among this class a person is not respected until he has killed his man, as they express it. When any new arrival came into camp, no one thought of inquiring if he was honest or industrious. But had he killed his man? If not, 
he was a person of small consequence and unworthy of further notice. If he had, the cordiality of his reception and his standing in the community was graduated according to the number of his victories. No man could rise to any position of influence with bloodless hands, without long and weary labor, but if he were known to have killed half a dozen men, his worth was at once appreciated, and he became a man of note in the community. Hence, it is not surprising that many men were killed without the pretext of provocation. So impatient were these persons to achieve distinction and emerge from their obscurity and become shining lights among the fraternity of desperadoes. There goes the man that killed Jack Smith, was the sort of celebrity mostly coveted by this class of people. And I know of several cases where persons tried to kill their men for no other reason, and in some instances were successful, in others got killed themselves for their pains. In such communities, it is utterly impossible to convict a man of murder, arising from one of these public brawls or affrays, and it is only when patience ceases to be a virtue, and the long-suffering miners and others of the law-abiding classes rise in their might, and by an indiscriminate execution of all persons of bad character, clear the atmosphere for a time that such crimes are ever punished. The desperado stalked the streets with a swagger, graded according to the number of his homicides, and a nod of recognition from him was sufficient to make an humble admirer happy for the rest of the day. The deference that was paid to a desperado of wide reputation and who kept his private graveyard, as the phrase went, was marked and cheerfully accorded. When he moved along the sidewalk in his excessively long-tailed frock coat, shiny stumped-toed boots, and with a dainty little slouch hat tipped over his left eye, the small fry ruffs made room for his majesty. When he entered the restaurant, the waiters deserted bankers and merchants to overwhelm him with obsequious attention. When he shouldered his way to the bar, the shouldered parties wheeled indignantly, recognized him, and apologized. They got a look in reply that made them tremble in their boots, and by this time, a gorgeous barkeeper was leaning over the counter, proud of a degree of acquaintance that enabled him to use such familiarity as, How are ya, Jack, old feller? Glad to see ya! What do you take? The old thing? Meaning his usual drink, of course. The best-known names in the mining towns were those belonging to these blood-stained heroes of the revolver. Governors, politicians, capitalists, leaders of the legislature, and men who made big strikes enjoyed some degree of fame but it seemed local and insignificant when compared with the celebrity of such men as these. There was a long list of them. They were brave, reckless men and carried their lives in their own hands. 
to do them justice, they did their killing principally among themselves, and seldom molested peaceable citizens, for they considered it small credit to add to their trophies so small an affair as the life of a man who was not on the shoot, as they termed it. They killed each other on slight provocation, and hoped and expected to be killed themselves, for they considered it almost disgraceful for a man not to die with his boots on, as they expressed it. Gradually, their ranks were thinned by the ever-ready pistol, but it was not so much this as the change in public sentiment that caused them mainly to disappear from the older mining communities. Now, except in newly opened diggings, the genuine desperado is a thing of the past. End of chapter 29